Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Gleb Spursky, a well-known scholar, entrepreneur, author, speaker, consultant, and coach who helps leaders plus organizations use science specifically to avoid disaster through science-based strategies for effective decision-making, emotional, and social intelligence. A professor, a professor at Ohio State University in the Decision Sciences Collaborative and the History Department, his articles frequently appear in places like Time, Psychology Today, The Conversation, Salon, Leading Change Group, Lifehack, Elite Daily, The Huffington Post, and more. This will be his second interview with us. I know I'm biased, but I do a lot of these interviews. And if you enjoy what you're about to discover, I highly, highly, highly recommend you check out our first interview. If you want to master developing willpower, focus, good mental habits, and better decision-making skills, that was an excellent, excellent call. Today, I've asked Gleb to join us here today to continue that excellent conversation, as well as tell us about his new book, The Truth Seekers Handbook. So Gleb, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing fine, Daryl. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate uh, having my second yeah, interview. Yeah, it was good. It was really timely, too, at the time. I was helping some family, uh, a relative that was actually going, and my cousins, and they were dealing with um, some addiction issues in their family, and I'd kind of come in to help them out. And it was really the, the whole discipline, the behavior changing, the mindset, it was really pertinent at the time. It was very uh, applicable for, for everyone. I actually sent them a copy of all of it. I tend to do that sometimes if I know people and I do an interview. Wonderful. So, and I think it was just powerful stuff. Some of it was just confirming what I already knew and other things were uh, reinfor- or, or new information or just updates on things I thought I knew, right? On kind of what's new in those avenues. So, um, so why don't you tell us a little bit, you got this new book, The Truth Seekers Handbook. Uh, can you speak to us a little bit about like what was the motivation for writing it? Or, you know, did you know you were going to write a book? Did it just kind of come together on its own? Yeah, so I've been writing a lot of articles uh, on how can we figure out the truth about reality in order to make good decisions to reach our goals. My focus is on making good decisions, but you can't really make good decisions if you don't have the right Mm. information. You know, as people say, garbage in, garbage out, right? So one of the things that I do is promote accurate evaluations of reality. How can we avoid the kind of cognitive biases, the kind of biased thinking? that inhibits our ability to evaluate reality accurately so that we can make good decisions. So that's stuff I consult about, stuff Mm. I speak about, and I've been writing a bunch of articles about this topic. And uh, people have been encouraging me to put them together into a book. So I looked at the articles, uh, edited them, added some new content, and put them together in a book. So it's a book that's been about four years in the making, and I'm pleased Mm. that it's out. So it focuses on how people can evaluate reality accurately, not giving into the biases that typically prevent us from evaluating reality accurately, and instead evaluate reality accurately in all of their life areas, in business, personal life, relationships, charity, politics, civic activities, everything, and then help others around them evaluate reality accurately mm-hmm. as well. 
So that's what the focus mm, of the book mm, is about. Mm. Yeah, and let's talk about that. I mean, I've been through the book, and I think there's some great chapters that are really pertinent to people, really important for people here. Things about how to talk to people, how, like basically how to have difficult conversations. If someone's really set in their ways, how to try to get them to look at the facts despite their intentional biases. And and you had already mentioned before at the beginning that we have some like bi uh, per biases in our perception that we may or may not be aware of that influence us. Can you go through some of the things? Like I know one from your book was catched patterns. Can you explain what a catched pattern is and some other biases that people may have? Sure. So the first thing to recognize is why we have them. That's a, often a question that people ask, you know, why do we have these biases? Well, the reason we have these biases is that we are not evolved for the modern world. We're evolved for the savanna environment. So we have this fight or flight response where it's, you know, see a saber-toothed tiger, you need to flee from the saber-toothed tiger. You're not going to stand around and think, should I flee from the saber-toothed tiger? <laughs> right. You know, we are the children of those uh, grandchildren, grand-grand-grandchildren of those people who actually fled from the saber-toothed tiger. We are also, you know, that's a good response. We're also the children of those who, you know, when they came on a honey, uh, on some honey from some honeybees, they ate all the honey they mm -hmm. can get their hands on. So that was a really good response in the savannah. Now, here in our current environment, we still want to flee from the saber-toothed tiger equivalent, let's say, get ourselves out of the way of a moving car. That's really healthy. But in our current world, when we have Twinkies and chocolate mm -hmm. cake everywhere, available very cheaply, it's a very bad idea to, get, to eat all the sugar we can get our hands on. So our gut reactions, our intuitions, are not calibrated well for the modern world. And if people just keep going with their guts, they'll do some things right, like getting out of the way of a moving car, but they'll do some things wrong, like eat all, their eat all the Twinkies. <laughs> so not a good idea. So that's the essence of bias thinking, why we have these cognitive biases, because we're not adapted to the modern world. Understanding that, we can see some of the reasons, some of the ways that are the patterns that we are using right now are not a good fit for the modern world. So for example, cash patterns, you asked about that. So cash patterns are typical ways of doing things that we have learned from our childhoods and from evolution that we have evolved to think about as appropriate. And that mainly has to do with tribalism. Mm. So living in small tribes, in that's the savanna mm -hmm. environment. We live in small tribes of a few dozen to you know, maybe over a hundred. And that's the type of mentality that we are used to thinking within, tribal mentality. So who is my tribe, where are my tribe, and so on. And that leads to a whole series of bad decisions, which we can talk about why that leads to bad decisions. So that's one reason. And cash patterns are things that we have learned in our childhoods. You know, so if you're, um, let me give an example. So my mom, whenever uh, she uh, re relaxed, she, re she rested, she used to eat a lot when she relaxed, just as a, as a way of spending her time. And so I learned that from her. And now that's really harming me right now to learn to eat, to avoid eating when I'm relaxing. It's a really difficult mm. thing if you learn that when you're a mm -hmm. child. That's one example. Another example from when you're a child, if your family had a lot of interruption going on when uh, people spoke. They jumped all over each other and so on. You learned to interrupt. That was the natural cash mm. pattern for you. However, in a business environment, if you're interrupting people, that's really bad. 
makes you look really bad, uh, undermines your social credibility, your social capital. You don't want to do that. But it's really hard to get out of the cash pattern if that's something you learned early mm -hmm. onward. So cash patterns can be a combination of evolution, what I mentioned about tribalism, or things that you learned early in your childhood that in your teenage years that are not a good fit for the current world, but you're not noticing. A lot of people who are, don't have as good social skills as they should soft skills in business environments aren't really aware of that. You know, there's really, there's really interesting research on emotional intelligence, which is a hugely important mm -hmm. area of skills for business. Now, the research shows that, emo that people who have some emotional intelligence and are aware of its importance are really focused a lot on getting more emotional intelligence training, development, because they know how important it is. But people who don't have strong emotional intelligence, they don't really go and get training in emotional intelligence. They ignore that. They think, no, I'm going to get vocational training and whatever uh, thing. And they ignore the importance of emotional intelligence. And that really stumps their career growth because they are not aware that this is a blind spot for them. So that's another example of a cash mm. pattern. Yeah, so you're talking about the non-cognitive skills there that just by being smart doesn't guarantee your success at things because a lot of times to be successful, it's something you have to collaborate with other people. And that's where emotional intelligence or just social intelligence are tools that would really help you benefit, help benefit uh, your, your uh, I was saying pursuing your cause, but just pushing your idea forward and just achieving it. I mean, we're social creatures. Not all of us work in team environments almost in every facet of our lives. I mean, this is a podcast interview, but it's still a team event between you and I. Right. So I, I, that's the, the balance between those. Right. And that's where I think a lot of the value of some of the chapters of your book, especially on like collaborating with other people and having those difficult conversations, how to communicate better in your personal and your civic life areas. I think that's a real value tool for that, because all of us, some of us may think that we're really good at it and we may think we're fantastic communicators. But if it were, we were to be put in a lab setting and observed in different scenarios, may find out we actually really suck. And uh you know, and that's, yeah, that's the whole unconscious incompetence. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And then, of course, the conscious incompetence where you realize, and like you mentioned, the people who are aware of the importance of these non-cognitive, these emotional intelligence, these social intelligence skills, that they want to develop them more because they're conscious how incompetent they are. And they want to get to a place where they can consciously mm -hmm. be competent. So one day they might unconsciously be competent and just naturally have great skills. And that's a level of mastery a lot of people uh, try to strive for. So um, I guess to pivot this a bit, can you talk about how this impacts our, I mean, we already kind of mentioned it a little bit, but can you talk about how it applies in a business scenario and maybe some, is there any tools that you can give people like a, a couple acronyms or something that we can remember to help when we want to, you know, go <laughs> through these things and we were caught in a cash pattern or some sort of bias that's limiting us? How do we you know, how do we how do we escape our limitations? Excellent question, and uh, definitely great insights about emotional and social intelligence. With emotional, these are things I consult about uh, quite a bit. With emotional intelligence, meaning self awareness and self management, awareness of one's own emotions and management of one's own emotions, and social intelligence, meaning awareness of other people's emotions and managing their emotions. So both mm -hmm. of these things are really important for addressing the kind of biases that we would tend to see in business environments. And let's get to a, a common situation, let's say a hiring situation. So let's say you're deciding to hire someone. If you are an employer, 
or deciding to work with someone if you're a solopreneur or trying to have a business relationship with someone and you're just evaluating whether the person is trustworthy. That's a really important question. Now, unfortunately, our tribal instincts, our tribal intuitions are just going to lead us astray. This is a really bad area. It's a really bad fit. It's a context. So the first thing to notice when you're evaluating these situations is, is this a context where my background in the savanna, the gut intuitions, is it going to serve me well or is it going to serve mm-hmm. me poorly? Now, we live in small tribes where we knew each other for quite mm-hmm. well, other tribe members. So if you know someone quite well and have been engaging with them for a long time, you can read cues pretty reasonably. So that's a good place to trust your gut intuitions, your gut reactions. However, if you're establishing a new relationship with someone, that's a really bad place to trust your gut reactions, your intuitions, because that person is not yet mm-hmm. part of your tribe. And as you know, within the Savannah environment, it was very dangerous to trust mm-hmm. strangers. So we have intuitive hostility towards strangers. That's something very dangerous. That's a perception mm-hmm. of ours. So this is not a time to trust your gut. And this is a time to know that your intuitions will be off. And specifically, there are two, there are two common ways they'll be off. One is called the halo, and the halo effect, and the other is called the horns effect. The halo effect is where if we like one characteristic of someone, we will intuitively like other mm-hmm. aspects of them more than we should. So, for example, here I am in Columbus, and uh, I teach at Ohio State. And so it's Buckeyes, so I'm contractually obligated through it for the Buckeyes. So uh, if I know that somebody else went to Ohio State and likes the Buckeyes, I will tend to like them more. Now, does that indicate that they will be a better business collaborator? Does that indicate that there will be a better employee? Mm-hmm. No, not at all. But intuitively, with my gut reactions, I will tend to over-evaluate, overestimate their trustworthiness their mm-hmm. competence in any set of activities in the job. So let's say I'm uh, doing, uh, let's say I'm uh, employing that person and I'm doing an interview and scoring them on various criteria as they're going through mm-hmm. the interview. I will, without recognizing that I'm doing so, this is an unconscious bias, just because they go to Ohio, they went to Ohio State and you know they like the Buckeyes, I will give them higher points on each of these things without realizing I'm doing it. That's the right. halo effect. The horns effect is the opposite. So if I don't like one aspect of someone, again, without recognizing it in any way, I will give them no negative points. So our big rivals up north is Michigan. If they are, if they you know come with some Michigan insignia, I will intuitively, without recognizing it, give them lower points. And again, this is again not something I'm trying to do. It's just intuitive. This is the intuition. This is the gut reactions. So this is, of course, the sport rivalry is an innocent example of something much more problematic. Sexism, racism, various ethnicity, religious, cultural, socioeconomic differences that really can get you in trouble if you're an, I do a lot of consulting for HR and hiring and so on. And this is one of those big areas where we talk about this as a huge problem. This This is a big, so this is a problem. The way to solve this in the context of uh, hiring or deciding who to work with if you're a solopreneur, a really good way is to go against your intuitions deliberately. 
when you're putting numbers on things. So if you notice somebody has some characteristics that you don't like for some reason, maybe their accent is off or something like that. However, they're different from you. The more different they are from you, the more additional bonus points you should give them. And the more similar they are to you, the more you should subtract mm. from them to correct for your new right. So this is just a corrective exercise. And uh, this relates back to something else without numbers. Numbers are something that wasn't present in the savanna. So if using numbers is something that can really help offset the gut reactions that lead us astray. And so putting numbers on your intuitions and correcting them using bonus points, adding them or subtracting them is going to really help you make more effective mm -hmm. decisions to reach and, your And I can attest to this. Goals. I used to hire based doing an interview and asking some questions, you know, and going through to make sure I'm asking the right questions and what their physical income is versus their psychic income and, you know, and, and their background experiences and how they would handle scenarios. And then I started doing something when I hire people is I started having a spreadsheet where I would come up with three to five uh, factors or criteria I thought were the most important for that role, whether it was a personality type, like they need to be judging and very analytical or they have to be super organized or they have to be very creative, um, you know, and, and coming up with these three to five things that I think need to be there in order for someone to be successful. And then I would rank them and weight how important these criteria are versus other ones. And then I would go through and, and when reviewing applications before I set up the interview, I would rank them based off the resume that they sent me and the little information that I had, how they've come so far. And then I would update that. I would take the best candidates, you know, if depending on how many applicants, I had one where there was like 40 applicants, you know, and after narrowed it down to a group of five, mm. and then I would do a group interview. And in the group interview, I would then update those, see how I felt, and I would sign a homework task or a, a sample task to see, you know, how they responded and the ones that matched the closest to the, what I thought they were. You know what I mean? Like, I, I tried to get the best picture of it yeah. I could. And I did this for, I mean, recording at the point in time of this recording, I did this for the last two hires that I did, and I thought they were some of the best hires that I had I'd done in terms of fit for role. Because mm -hmm. the problem that a lot of people have, to speak to your point, is when they want to hire people, when they like someone, Often you're hiring someone yeah. to do a job that you don't want to do, depending on the size of the company. And so if you <laughs> hire someone that's just like you, they may not want to do it either. And so you, that's where you have yeah. to understand that in a team, you need every color of the rainbow. You know, you need that because that's mm -hmm. what's going to build a well-diversified team. So just to, 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 to speak mm -hmm. to your point there, I think that's a really powerful tool. Absolutely. And uh, we don't even realize the biases we put on things. I mean, they did a test. It was like uh, being introduced to a new person, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like having a hot drink or a cold drink before meeting a new person and then being asked to assess them afterwards. And the people who got the hot drinks thought the person was warmer and all the personality traits we associate with warmness. <laughs> and the people who got the cold drink associate the person with colder. And that was just the drink that they got, you know, they drank before they met them. So, yeah, sure. we're, we're definitely. That's a phenomenon called yeah. priming where we are thinking about something. We may have a certain association. And we interpret the situation through that initial association we had. And that's definitely a common uh, psychological phenomenon that causes us to make mm. bad decisions when we're primed to think mm. in certain ways. Absolutely. And uh, that's a, definitely a good approach to hiring, to put numbers on people and uh, on their criteria and evaluate them that way. You're much more likely to make an effective decision. I would encourage you to also check with you if you like the people in some ways and mm. correct them, 
corrected for liking and also disliking. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it doesn't have to be clear liking or disliking. It's just more difference yeah. or less if difference. I, if I notice I prefer similar. someone, maybe tone down their scores a little bit by a point or two. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, exactly. yeah. Exactly, because otherwise you intuitively, without recognizing it, you will still give them more points yeah. than they deserve. That's just what the yeah, research no, fair enough. So I've got a couple other things I want to talk about. One is, again, in dealing with other people, there's a work scenario. There's someone that you're tied to working with them, and they just don't see it. Now, I used to do something, but I, it was very primitive compared to maybe some of the tools you have. I actually I read about this in a book, and I started doing it. And it was in a work scenario. I was working with a client 80% of my time uh, for about eight months. And I would always have a piece of paper in my pocket that said, what if they're right? And that was because and often I, you know, I, I know what's best. What are you talking about? I know what I'm doing. That's why I'm here, you know? Um, <laughs> and so in a, in a, in the question I want to ask is just some tools or coping mechanisms for anyone that's in that they're in a closed quarter scenario with someone, either tensions might be high or they're feeling really triggered and charged. And there's a, uh, you know, there's an elephant in the room, so to speak, or there's an issue. How do they evaluate that clearly? Sure. So there are two kind of things you want to think about, uh, two scenarios that we can do, uh, that we can deal with. One is whether when you're not confident about reality, like really super confident that this is the accurate thing that's going on, then you want to produce, then you want to pursue a practice called collaborative truth seeking. So that's one phenomenon. The other approach is when you're pretty you're really confident that something's going appropriate and accurate, but the other person seems to clearly deny reality. So let's go for that first. This is actually quite a bit more common than you might think happens. There is a four-year study by Leadership IQ, which found that about 23% of CEOs who get fired do did so for denying reality. Basically, the boards of organizations forced out these CEOs because they refused to recognize negative facts about the organization's mm. performance. Now. If the boards, you know, the boards would say that, hey, if the CEO was actually recognizing the reality and taking steps to address the situation, that would be great. That would be fine. I'm right. Great. That's fine. But the problem is, these CEOs who are forced out, they just weren't doing. They weren't acknowledging this negative uh, situation. And there are lots of reasons why that happens. You know, a common reason is that uh, I've seen a number of CEOs is that they tend to think that. Just because they're super awesome, the company must be doing really well under them. And so it's a kind of a real Mm. blindness, a a deep blind spot that they think just because they're talented and they think themselves as talented, therefore things can't Mm -hmm. go wrong. So again, not true, not the case. The really great people, great CEOs are ones who can recognize negative reality, negative facts about the organization's performance and turn things around. So, but these are. This denialism spreads and is omnipresent throughout lots of organizations, lots of venues, from solopreneurs to small businesses to middle managers to CEOs. So how do you deal with denialism? Well, the research on this topic shows that you don't want to deal with it by giving them the facts, especially if they're your boss. Mm. I mean, you know, they can, they have power over you. That's one thing. But uh, even if they're not your boss, even if they're call a peer or even a subordinate, you want to be careful you know, not to damage your interactions and the relationship with them by having arguments and giving them data if they have data, but they just don't realize reality. 
So the thing that you need to realize is that what's going on is an emotional block. Now, this is something uh, really interesting in companies. Companies tend to treat their employees as if they're mm. robots, as if they're cold, calm, rational robots. Not the case, not the case at all. I was um, working in an organization uh, once for, uh, for an engineering consulting firm, but about 200 engineers and some HR. And um, the HR managers, they were trying to motivate the engineers to do some selling as part of their activities. And the engineers would refuse to do selling. And I came in and saw how the HR people were trying to motivate the engineers to do selling. And they were trying to motivate the engineers to do selling by telling the engineers, hey, this is really important for the company that you say that you sell things. And I talked to the HR people and said, well, this is not really emotionally motivating to the engineers to do selling. And they were said, what, engineers have emotions? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they don't present as if they have emotions, but of course mm -hmm. they have emotions. So I, so I figured out what are emotional drivers for engineers to motivate them to do selling. In the similar situation, what you need to figure out are what are the emotional blocks that cause people to stick their heads into the sand of reality? So what are they afraid of? Let's say with a CEO, who we talked about in the beginning, the CEO might be afraid of being seen as a weak leader because under, their, under them, the organization is not doing well. So that might be the cause of them denying reality, flinching away from reality and refusing to recognize negative information. So, okay, that's fine. Then the next step, and that's the first part of a broader strategy called eGrip. Emotions, goals, rapport, information, positive reinforcement. So you got the emotions. They figured out what the CEO is concerned about. Then you go to the goals. You establish shared goals with the CEO. So you talk to the CEO about, hey, we both want the company to do well financially. That's really important. And we want to make sure that you're seen as a strong leader. So that's, you know, establish shared goals. CEO is happy with that. Then you go to a rapport, build up rapport, show that you're trustworthy, show that uh, you care about the CEO as a leader, that you care about his status as a leader, that that's important to you and the uh, profit of the company. So build up that relationship. Next, you present, that's the fourth, uh, that's the third step. Next is the fourth step, information. Here's where you present the information that may not be pleasant to the CEO. So you don't say, you know, hey, this is something that you're not realizing. You say, you know, great leaders are seen as great because they're able to turn their companies around and they're able to change and be flexible mm. in the face of difficult circumstances. And so get the CEO to think differently about what it means to be a great leader. And here's where you can talk about, hey, you know, are there any difficult circumstances right now in the company that might be, you can show your leadership by acknowledging and turning around. And so that would be a good opportunity for the CEO to shift their thinking reframe their thinking to orient more toward actually improving the company and not being in denial. And finally, end with P, positive reinforcement. So talk about how great leaders like the CEO are, it's really important for them to keep up this orientation to always acknowledge reality, even negative reality, and orient toward changing it. So to not have the same sorts of conversations with with the CEO in the future. So I 
I go in the book uh, through a couple of examples of how in my consulting practice, I went through these sorts of interactions with middle managers and so on, who had uh, didn't realize some facts about reality, were denying some facts about reality. And you want to be careful not to come off as condescending. This mm -hmm. is one important thing that I want to highlight. And you want to make sure that you have all the data available to you as you make these decisions about how to approach the, these people in managerial right. positions. So can we make this, uh, can we apply this to a real world scenario? Because I have, for example, it's funny you mentioned this. I have a client mm -hmm. right now and he's very addicted to doing. He's, he's misunderstanding busyness with productivity. And it's, it's intense, mm -hmm. like it's an intense thing. It's actually a really big pain point with a lot of his team members. In fact, before our interview here, I was a couple minutes late because I was dealing with one of the partners of that business kind of coming to me trying to resolve because there's this guy and like, he's just, he's, if, if this were high school, we would call him like newness because he's every day there's something new, like it's <laughs> new, 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 this thing, new, that thing. And it's, he's a fantastic starter, but not stopping. So how would we walk through this e-grip for that? Like the emotions, the goals I think would be easy because the goals would be like, look, this is what everyone's trying to accomplish is what everyone wants to achieve. You know, this is what everyone's all about. That part, the rapport, I get that. The information, I think I get that part to tie that in. But the emotion part of the beginning, how do you address that? Because I think mm -hmm. that, yeah. Sure. So um, one of the things I'm hearing, of I mean, of course, I need a lot more context, but one of the things I'm hearing is that this part person likes to, wants to start a lot of new projects. And not finish them. Am I hearing that well, correctly? Well, he wants them finished by other people, but the reality is, is they're not all That's relevant right. to the three goals of the quarter. There's three goals this company has for the quarter. Okay. But this guy, you know, yeah. They're not a little. Sure. So there are a couple. There are a number of things that might be going on, and you want what you want to see is what kind of emotional payoff he's getting from starting these projects, uh, and uh, that other people are left to finish or discard. So that tells me that he is getting some sort of emotional pay or trying to get some sort of emotional payoff from starting these things because he's excited. He wants to have new projects. There's a certain personality type, and uh, this actually aligns in some ways with my personality type, of people who are intuitively optimistic and risk blind, who like to generate ideas, brainstorm, be creative, and they don't see the problems with their creativity and how they, these, this creativity doesn't necessarily align with the broader strategy and organization right. of, the, of, of the project. So what helps, what I tend to do in these sorts of situations, when I come in and find that one member of the team is like that, I tend to pair them, and these, this person tends to usually be very optimistic, tend to pair them with pessimists who would work with them and not simply knock down their ideas, but help improve their ideas, help um, that person acknowledge that, hey, some of your ideas, your ideas are always going to be half-baked and that's fine. Let's just treat your ideas always as half-baked, not as definitive right. things, but as suggestions. And then see how this more pessimistic person can work with you to improve some of the ideas into worthwhile mm. projects and discard some of them that are too half-baked, you know, that are third-baked or quarter-baked. Right. So uh, work on those. And then uh, 
then then at that point I would, if the projects that are judged worthwhile by the organization, I probably give them to somebody else to finish, because this person is not likely to be able to have the talent to finish them, and that's not may not be the best use of his energy or skills. So in a conversation then, that would work yeah. as so the emotions would be is find out the emotional payoff. So major maybe his payoff would be being a doer, being a leader, like you said, brainstorming, being like this, seeing himself as this creative visionary leading us into new, you know, new, new victories, <laughs> right? Type thing. That's the emotional payoff. Yes. So the conversation to have with him would be like to to kind of I give identify him in that role. Hey, so-and-so, I know that you're really good as a leader and a doer, and you're really fantastic with this sort of thing. You know, right now we've all agreed on these types of goals, you know, these things. I know that you've mm -hmm. got the skill sets, and especially with those, you know, being such a great leader and doer, you can really help us make headway into doing this. But, you know, some of these things are not the, that's where I'm kind of getting caught up, because now I'm at the information part. Sure. The information would be, however, you know, some of the team are struggling because these, these, this, this thing don't really tie into the major goals, right? And then how do positive reinforcement at the end? Mm. You know, could sure. you? So I would, I, I would encourage uh, you to position it as something like, can you uh, describe or decide, think about which of these projects most effectively tie into these goals mm. that you see, and please ah. explain why they, why they most effectively tie it because. You are a visionary leader, and you are clearly ahead of the rest of us. I'm not sure I follow your vision. Can you help bring right. us along? Right, right. So that's, yeah. See, what I like there, and that was why I wanted to have a concrete example for the listeners and for myself as well, sure. is because that's a differentiation where I was going to try to walk them through it. You're going through these steps to let them lead themselves, like in a Socratic method, right? Like letting them lead themselves to the conclusion where they might go, well, none of these tie into that goal. Right, and then and then they kind of right. So that's that's part. Right. Of, uh, yeah, that's part of the rapport. So you kind of establish trust. You show them that you trust them. You trust them to be a visionary leader. And uh, so you, if you know that that's the emotional payoff, that that's kind of the benefit they're getting, then you have the shared goals of the projects. And the rapport is where you you're building up trust. You say, Hey, I, I trust you as a visionary leader. Help me understand what what you're doing here. And the information part is you know. In, more implicit there, where you're asking them to show you, asking him to show you where and how these projects tie to these right. goals. And that, that might be a time to uh, talk about, you know, resource limitations or so on as part of the information. And so that might be a part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. But basically, you want them to put it on them to show you, put it on him to show you how these projects tie into the goals. And which of these projects tie into the goals the best out of the projects that he describes and kind of have a conversation about that because of natural resource limitation. I'm sure right, he knows right. that. Yeah, no, that's excellent. That's a great example. Now, now, how about with long-term goal planning? What are some of the, the things that people get tripped up on with long-term goal planning? And then how, what are some tools that we can use to help with that? So, yeah, there's lots of uh, ways that people get tripped up. One of the most fundamental things is planning fallacy. So uh, there was an interesting study conducted where students uh, in the same class, a large class of students, there was one group of students asked, hey, you know, here's this end of term paper. Now, if everything goes perfectly, how long do you think it will take you to do this end of term paper? And they said six weeks. 
And there was another group of students from the same class who were asked, hey, how long do you think that it'll take you to do this uh, end of term paper? And they said six weeks. Right. <laughs> so, you know, how likely is it that everything will go perfectly? Very, very unlikely. It's almost a zero probability that there's some, you know, dog will eat your homework, you know, you won't have food, something will break down, uh, you know, get drunk or something. This is college students, right? Not the same thing for a business environment, but I see it all the time in business where people um, have a project and they don't put in nearly enough money and time to complete the project for unexpected contingencies. They think that everything will go perfectly and they just plan for things to go perfectly. So that's a really huge problem that I see very often with projects. Now, what really helps to address that is to understand that our mind, our gut intuitions, the gut reaction does not recognize problems intuitively. It just doesn't recognize problems. It thinks that our plans will go well, even when it sees other people's plans go awry, it thinks that our plans mm. will go well. What really helps to address that is a strategy called pre-mortem. So pre-mortem is a strategy where, you know, you heard about the mm -hmm. post-mortem where you look after the fact that what went wrong. Pre-mortem is a strategy where you imagine in advance that the project failed, and then you try to go back and consider all the possible reasons that it failed. Then once you consider all the possible reasons, that really helps to address the planning fallacy basically. Because then you're like, okay, it failed, why did it fail? Let's talk about all the reasons why it failed. You look at all the all these reasons and you pick the most plausible ones and think, hey, how can I address these problems? How can I prevent them? How can I make sure that these problems don't derail this project? Now, sometimes as a result of doing a pre-mortem with organizations, we figure out that it maybe a project shouldn't happen. And that's actually a great outcome. Sometimes, you know, the product shouldn't be launched, you're not ready for it. You might be ready later, but it takes some more time. Uh, to get ready, to put in things in place that you need to prepare for before you have the project launched. Uh, so that's, that's a really good strategy. That's a really good outcome. And uh, sometimes you might not want to do the project at all. And that's a surprisingly good outcome if you decide that you don't want to do the project at all. People underestimate the importance and value of the outcome of choosing not to mm. do a project. So just be very clear, that's a really important and positive outcome yeah. sometimes. But yes, when you, when you do a pre-mortem, that can really help you address a lot of problems. And, it, and it, what else? That's the thing that uh, I remember I did a workshop on uh, project management and creating Gantt charts. And that's a really that whole risk assessment thing. It's really powerful because, like you say, you come up with why might this project not, why it failed, why were the reasons why it failed, make a list of those, and then be like, all right, well, what are we going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen? Or what are we going to do as soon as we feel this is happening? And then it also lets you adjust your time schedule for how long things will take, you know, and have those plans in place. And like you say, it's a hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. And I know we're especially in this day and age, we're in such a, a world of self-gratification. But people don't appreciate the time they're walking down the street and they turn left instead of right so they didn't get hit by a car. Mm. You know, it's, it's hard to appreciate mm -hmm. the bullets that were shot at you that didn't hit because they didn't hit you for you to really, you know, to feel that pain. And so like what you say, if you go through this and you're like, it failed, instead of just hoping for the best, like go through the project, why might it fail? What would be the causes? Let's put up some contingencies in place now. And if it's too hard or too costly or too expensive to make it work in a worst case scenario, it might be better to walk away or think of an, a, a simpler way to do it. You know, just chew it on for a while, chew on the, the idea for a while. 
because again, it's so much better. I mean, it's like exercise, like injuries are the worst thing. I hate injuries. You know, even when I was doing martial arts, we used to say that injuries are the real enemy because they stop your training. They can inhibit your, your mobility and your confidence, and they can create fear in your mind where it didn't exist before because of injuries, you know? So it's the same sort of thing. I think like this, like by just being a little more cautious with your projects and planning, uh, you're more likely to be successful. That's a great tool. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a really good analogy with injuries. And I think it's something that people tend to forget. And the problem, one problem uh, with the, what you're talking about, we don't see the, you know, the bullets that didn't hit us. There's a psychological phenomenon, one day's cognitive biases is called survivorship bias, where we tend to observe and see the entrepreneurs, the CEOs who are successful. And we tend to not see all the people who are not successful, who failed, they're not visible to us. All the businesses that closed aren't visible to us. All the businesses that could have been aren't visible to us. We don't know them. We're not observing them. We're only seeing the ones who succeeded and we think, oh, we can be like them. Well, we're not seeing all the ones who didn't succeed. They didn't survive for us to have the information about their lack of success. So this is something really important. If we imagine really accurately, rationally, looking at the environment of business, we have to imagine the ghosts of unsuccessful businesses standing all around the successful ones. And that will give us a much more realistic assessment and of the dangers that we're working in and help us make much better decisions about putting in time and resources into doing risk assessments of various sorts to prevent disasters. Mm, 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 mm. Well said, very well said. So you've given us some great tools in just acknowledging our own biases and helping make smarter decisions. And maybe people might feel like it's a lot to go through. Like we talked about the hiring plan. So you might not do it for all things, but if you're going to buy a house, if you're going to buy a car, if you're going to buy a staff member, you know, like hire someone, take on an, an important, potentially a heavy weighted decision that has long-term implications and consequences. You know, maybe these are some tools that you may want to consider thinking of using. Like we discussed it, we talked about it in a situation of hiring someone. It could be applied to anything, taking on a new partner for your business, anything such mm -hmm. as that. We also talked about how to communicate when there's a breakdown in communication and either we are the one with a cognitive bias or we're the one that's got some sort of that have shut down or are refusing to acknowledge reality or if there's someone else that's uh, uh, that's not accepting reality as it were. And then we also talked about planning and project management and some tools to help us be more successful with our plans and our goals. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you about? No, I think that was great. And uh, one thing I would add is that while the things that we've talked about, the decision-making is wiki decisions. If you go for the book, The Truth Seekers Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, thing is you pick up mental motions that can help you in any sort of situation. You can make quick decisions, you know, do I buy the desk or do I not buy the desk? If you learn the mental motions behind the more complex decision-making, you can very quickly think, what are the criteria I'm looking for in a desk? You don't just go with, you know, this desk looks mm -hmm. nice. You think, okay, here are the three criteria. Here are the, which of these is more important, which of these is the least important. Let me rate the desks here in the store on these three criteria and evaluate very quickly which desk I want for right. my office. Yeah. Very easy. And very especially quick. like, uh, we didn't talk about it all, but you mentioned like the elephant versus the elephant rider. And I think helping people, have people understanding kind of how their mind operates that 
a large percent of your brain is just an emotional kind of reacting thing. And then there's a small part of it that kind of helps steer and control and is more rational and analytical. And you might be able to assess if you're in a situation. If you're in a situation, this is often common at conferences and such, where they try to create a buyer frenzy. You know, are you caught up in the moment? Mm. You know, are you going being taken for a ride by the elephant or are you driving the elephant where you want it to go? And so you'll find some tips in the book as well on that and how to recognize those moments that you're in and, and differentiate between the two. Absolutely. And that's one of the really important things that conferences didn't exist in the Savannah right. environment. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So this, this is a time to, anytime you're in an environment that's not like the Savannah environment, it's time to be yeah. more cautious and not trust your gut. Not trust because you never emotions. even know when people might be using these against you. I've been to conferences where I know mm -hmm. they were about to make a large dollar offer, like multi-thousand dollar offer from the front of the stage. And I went to a, a few of this gentleman's uh, conferences and I noticed a pattern that every time before he made the pitch for this thing, the temperature in the room would drop to below comfortable. And it was because once he made the command to go, if you're interested, to the back of the room and fill it up, nobody wants to be in the room because everybody's frozen. So everybody stands up, which creates, right? It triggers the people that were already on the fence, creates a scarcity, an impression mm -hmm. of scarcity. I mean, there's there's ways people use this stuff against you that you aren't even aware of. It really is, whether they're a con men Absolutely. or whether they're just legitimate business people that are just helping you overcome yourself. You know, a lot of this is, in some ways, that's also necessary. I mean, that's part of selling is helping people overcome their own mental biases to come to a rational decision that your product or service would is what they need and will help them. And that they're really stuck in a fear mindset right now um, or a scarcity mindset. Sometimes that happens. Someone's income gets cut by half and suddenly they're in this scarcity mm -hmm. mindset. And so they're kind of clawing at straws everywhere they can. And they're really sensitive to anything that maybe they wouldn't be if they weren't in that sort of scenario. So uh, definitely check out the book. You can find this book, The Truth Seekers Handbook, and others at Gleb uh, Spursky. Forgive me if I didn't pronounce that right. G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y.com. Once again, that is G-L-E-B, Gleb, T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y.com. Or I, I'm assuming, are you on all the other channels like Amazon and all that stuff? Yeah. Perfect. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. You can find the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide on Amazon, as well as on my Perfect. Website. There you go. So check those out, Gleb. Thank you again. It's always super informative and very practical and real world, uh, has real world implications and applications. I think it's fantastic. If anybody enjoyed this call, you definitely want to listen to our previous interview we did. It's on a different vein, but similar topic and full like this, full of really good, actionable, applicable things that can help make your life and your business run better. So, Gleb, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. It's always an honor and a pleasure. I appreciate you, and thank you for coming and sharing with my audience. Thank you so much, Daryl. It's always a pleasure to be on with you as well. You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. 
It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better, and your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.